0: On Friday morning, I heard John Perkins speak a bit, and when he was talking, I realized he was saying something very pertinent for what I was planning to say when I had decided to preach almost embarrassedly, that's a word, from 1 Corinthians 13. It's such an overused text that I felt a little silly, but I think it's so good, but it's so unfamiliar because of its overfamiliarity, And as I was thinking about this, and I heard John Perkins, as he was speaking somewhat prophetically, he said these things. And I think, wow, this is a really prescient sort of word for a people who are divided between blue states and red states and Republicans and Democrats about trying to determine what our society's true woes are and therefore what their remedies are. We think we're addicted to foreign oil. We need sustainable solutions here in America. Our economy will not prevail if we don't have our own energy here. We're addicted to debt. Our economy can't survive without it, but can our future be long with the continuing use of it? We may be addicted to government, some people think, to the ubiquity of resources that are funded somehow that are to take care of us. We are addicted, we think, in many, too many things. And this is what John Perkins said, though. In the middle of all these presumed problems that we face, he said the real problem in our country is that the middle class, most of you here, is addicted to itself. The middle class spends too much time and money and resource and care on itself. And I thought, ooh, he's going to offend someone. But I think he's right. We are addicted to ourselves. It's what Billy and Becky spoke of when they realized that we were hoarding support, they said, for just us. And as he said that, I realized this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to remedy. A situation where a group of people care too much about themselves and therefore... Well, it's not that they care too much for themselves. It's they care too little for God and their neighbors in relation to their care for themselves. And so he writes this really lovely text that's often used at weddings... But I hope you'll remember that he has written it in the middle of a letter to a bunch of spiritual show-offs. He's written it in the middle of a letter where he's been trying to help people understand who have all sorts of gifts and abilities, but who are also thinking they're all that because they have cool spiritual tricks to perform. They can speak in tongues. They can think God's thoughts after him. They can say, be healed. And it happens. They are therefore dividing among one another. They're sizing each other up. Some thinking they're better than others. And Paul is very distraught about all this division. He's just told them in chapter 12, hey, you're a unity of unalikes, to use C.S. Lewis's words. You're all configured differently, but you're all so vitally necessary. Even the parts that don't seem necessary at all, they're just receive special treatment. And so he's saying, you're not all going to be apostles. You're not all going to be prophets, not all teachers, not all miracle workers, not all earnest, angelly gifts of healers, not all tongue speakers, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now he says, I will show you the most excellent way. If, and then he begins, I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Essentially, in these first few verses, what the Apostle does is something that's kind of startling to us if we pay attention, is that he is essentially saying this, Love is the heart of all things, and religious folk, like us, are most susceptible to being the most heartless. What? Love is the heart of all things, and religious folk, like us, are most susceptible to to being heartless, or to losing the heart of all these things. And so he mentions several kinds of religious activities, I hope you can see. If I speak, he says, in the tongues of men and of angels, if I have heaven's words on my lips, if I speak in a a tongue that only God can understand, that connects me with Him in such an exuberant way, but I don't have love, that I'm like, I'm like those kids next door who keep listening to that loud rock and roll music. I'm thinking, why do the kids listen to music like that? It's horrible. It's just noise. It grates on me. He says, you can speak God's words and if they're not done to please God and for the good of others, it's like horrible rock and roll music. To a senior citizen's ears. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy. God lets you in on his secrets. And I can fathom all mysteries. And I have all knowledge. And if I have this sort of faith. the sort of trust in God that can say to a mountain. Hey, jump. Mountain. Jump from there to there. And the mountain says back to you, how high? How high do you want me to jump? If you have that kind of cool spiritual power but you don't have any love generating it, you're not doing these things because you you want what God wants and you're concerned for the good of those you're doing it for, then you're nothing. He says, you know, you could, you could actually give to the poor everything you have. You could embody the, That great insult from right-wing conservatives about liberal do-gooders. You could embody typical white man's guilt and go around and helping people just so you feel better. There's a movie I saw recently called Thank You For Giving. And Catherine Keener in it is so eaten up with her upper middle class guilt that she can't help but spread it to everybody. She offends people left and right, giving her leftover food even to people waiting in line, thinking they're homeless when they're not. She gives because she's guilty. She gives for her, not for them. He says you could even become a martyr. You could surrender your body to the flames. But if you aren't doing it for God or for neighbor, you're just playing around. Now, what's important about that is to recognize all those things are religious things. They're things that people in a community of faith would esteem. They're the sorts of things that we like to do to build our spiritual resumes. You're the kind of people who come here on a Sunday morning when it's pretty outside. You could be worshiping soccer. You could be playing golf. You could be reading the newspaper. All those things might be more fun than this. And yet you're here, and some of you give money away, and some of you stay put in marriages, and some of you adopt little babies. Some of you help tornado victims. And the apostles' concern here is that a community could have all the trappings of these religious cares and concerns and have the heart scraped out of them. If it isn't love doing those things, you know what you're doing? It's self-worship. It's building a spiritual resume. It's a way of sort of saying like a kid, Hey, look, Mom, no hands. Riding your bike and showing off. Look how good I am. This is the sort of thing that Jesus was always getting mad about. You do realize, as we've discussed in the past, that Jesus, meek and mild, was sometimes downright... Ornery, it seems like to people, there's sometimes he had harsh, unfavorable words to say to people and they were generally to people like us who thought they were better than other people. He would say things to Pharisees like, you're following God's rules, but by saying, I've devoted this gift to God so I can't help my mama and my daddy. You won't lift a hand to help anybody, he tells them, because your law won't let you and you've misunderstood the point of all the law is that you would be bending over backwards for the good of your neighbor and your enemy. So think about this, the susceptibility of doing even good things without love. You've heard this example perhaps before. There are in this room people who will do the dishes At their spouse. Instead of for their spouse. Do you know what I'm speaking of? You serve somebody. And they know you're serving at them, not for them. They know that you're seething inside. They know that you're trying to shame them with your good actions. And Paul says, that's why... It's the most dangerous kind of thing for religious people who are committed to doing good kinds of actions in the world to do those actions and not let them be generated, propelled, pushed out by a love that is concerned for those other people. Of course, the apostle, like John the Beloved, would say the reason, the way that we get to be able to actually care about pleasing God and not just showing off for him, is to actually believe and to know and to rely on the love that God has for us. It's to actually believe that it doesn't matter how many cool spiritual tricks I can do or how many good deeds I've done or how many babies I've adopted or how much poor suffering I've alleviated, how many acts of service I've done for my children or for my next door neighbor, these are not the things that make God love me. God loves me, which generates all these sorts of things out of me. I was asked yesterday as I stood with these groomsmen at Scott Warland's wedding, a wonderful wedding. They were asking me as we were about to move into the show, we're getting our game faces on. They said, hey, do you still get nervous when you speak? And I, you know, I was trying to be cool. They're all cool guys. And I started thinking about it and I said, well, I'm nervous on the one hand because I'm organizationally challenged. I never know how to put order on anything. So that makes me nervous because I'm always afraid I'm going to get up there and the words aren't going to come out right. And I have to count on God and I don't like doing that. But but on the other hand, what I realize is that when I'm preaching here or at Lula Lake, when I'm with the people that I love and the people that I know love me, I'm not saying I know why you love me, but it seems like you love me. And that's kind of weird, but it's awfully good. I notice that I don't really get nervous when I'm around you. So I sometimes will do funny voices and I'll do impersonations and seem like a fool. Sometimes I'll even at Christmas sing a hymn on a guitar and look like one of those dudes on American Idol in the early stages. (laughs) But I do that because I feel the comfort of your love that sort of frees me to not think about myself. I notice another law at work. When I go to another place to speak, All of a sudden, I find this fire, this raging fire of a need to perpetuate my general awesomeness to everyone, and I'm terrified that they're not going to know how awesome I am already, so I've got to prove it to them in this one speech. Oh, man, and the pressure of that. My heart starts to beat out of my chest. My carotid arteries start doing funky things. Because my ego gets in place and I don't know if I'm loved and I think I've got somehow to secure the love by exuding my general awesomeness, which mostly I keep to myself. Well, you see, I think that dynamic is what happens. That's what why God made you to live in families. That's why God gave us to each other. That's why. The scriptures insist before it calls us to love that we know that we love because we were first loved. None of the things that you're called to are you called to so that you can get love. You're relying on a prior affection from God which says you don't have to prove anything. You don't have to win my favor. You've got my favor. Now you don't have to be concerned about yourself anymore. You can be concerned about doing what I want, and know I'm not going to kick you to the curb if you mess up. You can be concerned about the people out there because you're not trying to build a spiritual resume. They're not your competition. You're not in a competition. You're in a massive distribution of the free affection that I have given you before you'd ever did a thing. You start to believe that and you'll find your eyeballs being shifted so that they're not just constantly looking at yourself, analyzing yourself, thinking about yourself, considering how you're being loved or whether people are responding to you rightly or how they're thinking about you. Your eyeballs, they go out and you start to notice other people. They go up and you start to count on God. That's what love does when it is responding rightly to God is it's able to do these religious things with the heart put back in them because it's counting on the prior love of God to be able to please Him and to be able to be concerned about other people. The second thing Paul says is as he makes this description of love, he says it's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. Essentially, he says, as Dan Allender puts it, love moves outward toward others and away from us. Of all these descriptions that Paul gives, the most poignant one is right in the middle. It is not self-seeking. If we're addicted to ourselves, if we are thinking that the world depends on us, then we're going to be furiously looking for how we can get what we need, if we're not counting on God to resource us, to let his favor be our security, to surround us with it like a shield, then we're going to be preoccupied with ourselves. And so everybody becomes a rival. And everybody becomes a nuisance. And that's why the apostle can say love is patient. It's kind. You think about the places where you grow impatient. The places where you're not kind. The places where you're envying. Aren't they where you're not getting your needs met? You get impatient because. Somebody's not doing what you think they ought to be doing. For you. Or they're doing something. That they won't stop doing. That's annoying. You. And so. The apostle can say, if you're rightly appropriating what Christ has done for you, then you know what you can do is you can, in the middle of all sorts of situations that aren't sorted out yet, that aren't finished yet, you can take the posture of saying, you know what? God's up to something so I can wait on him. Kathy and I remind each other sometimes when we... Spot a defect in our children. They only have one or two. They haven't inherited all mine. They're like your children. When you see. Sins. And your children. It doesn't mean. You throw up your hands. I'm a failure. It means there's still work to be done. It means they're still waiting on the Lord. To be done. They're still trusting him to do stuff. To be done. And. Is that any different than any other situation you're in? All the places with your spouse, with your co-workers, with your boss, with your neighbor, that you grow impatient. Why don't they just stop it? Why can't they just be different? Why don't they just do the right thing? Why won't you just do the right thing? I don't know. But if we're counting on the God who loved us first, then we can also wait on him. To be concerned for them as well. We can be patient. We can. Be kind. We can not have to. Seek ourselves. We don't have to. Boast and be proud. One of the ways that you can tell. In your relationships that you're not really. Counting on this love of God. Is you'll find yourself cataloging. Your accomplishments. Married people do this a lot. They're trying to. Get credit for themselves because they don't feel like they're being given it. You find yourself starting to work in the conversations, what you've done, why you're worthy, what you've given up, how much you've worked. And as you take Paul's words into, you start to back up a little and say, "Wait wait wait, wait, wait. Oh yes, I'm not. I don't need to boast. And I don't need to catalog my accomplishments because I don't have anything to prove. Love is not about me seeking myself. I'm taken care of. I am now free to be concerned about the good of those around me. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. It's a new way of seeing, the apostle says. It sees through what's on the surface. It's a new lens that you put on the eyeballs of your heart when you're assessing other people. I was in a room at General Assembly a few years ago. General Assembly is one of the most extraordinary experiences a pastor can have. It's where all these pastors in the PCA get together and fight. Just kidding. They don't fight, they never fight. Presbyterians have never fought. Well, I was in a room with a bunch of young church planters. They were hip, you know. It was a few years before skinny jeans, but they had the little glasses, and they, were, they had moose in their hair and stuff. And they were in urban places, and they were doing cool things, and they were disenfranchised by the establishment. So that's not cliched. And as we were sitting in this room talking about the future of denomination and talking about what was going on and the different works that were going on, these guys we're complaining, woo, Whining, griping. And I was not joining them and feeling awfully smug because I wouldn't complain and whining and griping. And I as we walked out of the room with this older, wiser pastor, I said, Man, there's a lot of negativity in there. Those people sure are complaining a lot, and you know what he said? Instead of saying, Why are you such a self righteous prig? He said this instead, which was even better. He said, you know, there was a lot of complaining and griping in there. I heard a lot of hurting people. I was like, oh. (laughs) Like, yeah, that's probably right. (laughs) Like, a child that's acting badly sometimes needs to be held more tightly. And people who are complaining and griping and are eaten up with bitterness are people that we probably need to move toward. And this lens of love helps us to see through the initial distances or protests or negativity and helps us to say, this is a person who needs love. This is a person who needs, like me, to receive most when they deserve it least. Phil Yancey said, one of the ways I've learned to look at people who I morally disapprove of is like Jesus with that woman at the well, that Samaritan woman, who had obviously, with her five husbands, been looking for love and as that country music song said, all the wrong places. Is that Conway Twitty? I don't know. But he realized that she was awfully thirsty. She wasn't living right, but she was trying to whet an appetite and couldn't find the right place to get the water. And so Yancey says, what I've started to do when I see people who are doing morally repugnant things, and I see people who aren't acting like I think they ought to act, I say to myself, my, oh my, they must be really thirsty. And of course, love, the love of God that is an enemy love that converts us into sons and daughters, is the kind of lens that we can use on all the people that you're tempted to judge they say, they, like me, need an enemy converting love. Maybe I'm the carrier of it. See, this posture also, as it protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres, it doesn't delight in evil. You know what it also can do is it, it takes away the need to focus on all that's wrong with the people around us. On Friday before this wedding, I was with Miss Polly, this widow lady who had been married for 47 years to Rudolph. He's no longer living, but I said, I'm about to do this wedding, Polly. What do I need to tell these young people? How do you stay married for 47 years? What do I, what do I need to tell them? And she said, tell them they need to learn to shut up. It's like, dang, Polly. Learn to shut up? She said, yeah, I think that was the most important thing I learned in my marriage. We'd get to fussing, and I realized if I would shut up, there wouldn't be anything to fuss about. See, a lot of us think that everything negative that goes across our mind must be uttered. And we keep a lot of positive things, a lot of admirable things, we keep them to ourselves. They never see the light of day. Well, see, this reorienting that love does as Paul sees it, it doesn't rejoice in evil. It rejoices with the truth. And it, and it overlooks things. And so what you can do is you can actually let negative things cross your mind and you don't have to say anything about them. And you won't die. And you can actually, instead of gossiping about people, for instance, you could start positively gossiping about them. Share good things that you hear. Share good things that you notice. When love starts to be the heart behind what you're doing, you'll be like our favorite octogenarian barber, Jaber Crow, who says, I try not to let good things go by unnoticed. Instead of becoming the inspector for all the dirt around you, you become the inspector for all the good that you see, and you start to call it forth. In a premarital counseling session the other day, I had... Two people planning to get married, saying to each other what they admired about each other. And you know what's interesting? It feels a little goofy. I feel really stupid asking them to do it. But you know what? Nobody ever does that. Nobody ever sits across the table and says out loud all the great things they love about a person. And so I make them. And they feel weird. And they feel delighted. I didn't know she felt that way about me. I didn't know he thought those things about me. Well, I know that's because we only share our negative criticisms with each other. We don't really applaud each other very much. But love is always doing that so we can learn to shut up and not to self-seek. And if this is really going to be the heart of what we do as a people, if love really is, the apostle says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love? And Jesus said all the law and the prophets, all the, the front part of your Bible, it hangs on these commands to love God with everything you got and to love your neighbor with all the energy and the meditation and the thoughtfulness that you constantly demonstrate towards yourself. Show that to them. Translate that extraordinary ability you have to meditate, cogitate, Ruminate. I'm going to start hooping in a minute. On yourself, translate it into what, how you think about other people, how you empathize with them. If you're going to order your life around love like this, you've got to do a few things. One is this. This might sound weird. You've got to practice some kind of self-care. huh? You know, one of the interesting things you notice in the Gospels, the Gospels, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, never speak an extraneous word. And they tell us these times where Jesus is off in the early hours of the day. He's off praying in a solitary place, and his disciples come to him, and they're like, where are you? What are you doing? Everybody needs you. And he's off praying. Or he'll say to his disciples sometimes, after they've had a long time of interacting with other people, come away with me. You've had nothing to eat. Let's get some rest. He always had, as our professor used to say, one foot in the boat. One of the things I notice is that I am incapable of caring about anybody but myself if I'm not sleeping. If I am too taxed. If I am not getting any space in my life. And you're the same way. Most of you have not made any margins in your life to be able to care for anybody else. Because part of not being self-seeking and part of actually caring for your neighbor like you care for yourself means that your schedule is going to get interrupted. Interrupted but most of us don't even have the space to let our schedules get interrupted. And so love takes time. To be concerned about somebody takes space. And so you've got to allow for that. The people who are going to love others best are going to make sure that they get care for themselves that they need so that they are then equipped to go out and love others. It's legal for you. And the other thing, I have so much more to say, I'm going to close with this. The other thing is an honest sort of admission that has to happen to everybody because when you read this, I hope what happens is that on the one hand you're inspired, on the other hand you think, I don't really see much of myself in there. I hope you realize that. It's hard not to seek ourselves. It's hard to be concerned more with what we give to others than what we get from them. Our native tongue is self preoccupation. But let me read to you in closing a, a word from a the man who coined the phrase Generation X in the mid nineties, a postmodern author, postmodernism is passe now, in a book called Life After God, where he wrote about his suburban Canadian life without belief, without religious conviction, in a post Christian sort of world he said now here's my secret I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again so I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words my secret is this that I need God I'm sick and can no longer make it alone I need God to help me give because I no longer seem to be capable of giving I need his help to be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me to love as I seem beyond being able to love. This is a man who hasn't been given the resources that you and I have, but he's been given a gift. The gift of being introduced to himself. The gift of recognizing that he needs someone who knows all but will not turn his face away. Our gospel says that that is what has happened with our Savior. That he's known everything about us and he said, I want you. I know everything embarrassing about you, but will never be embarrassed by you. I told a story in the wedding yesterday about Scott Warland, an admirable young fellow who just married Bonnie Kaiser. Good job, Dave and Sally, in raising this kid. This story went like this. This this bride, back when they were engaged, was with her roommate and they were cooking supper for a group of friends. All these boys were at their house and they were cooking a big meal for them. And Bonnie, she started a singing, apparently. I don't know if Bonnie's a good singer or not. I think the story would be better if she was a bad one. I don't know. She's probably a great one. But, Her friend, as she told this story, said, I told Bonnie, you better stop singing because Scott's going to be embarrassed in front of his friends. Scott overheard this conversation and interjected quickly and fiercely, I would never be embarrassed of Bonnie. Everybody in the room's Skin had chill bumps on it, tears in eyes as she told that story at the rehearsal dinner on Friday night. Because when he said that, he made visible, he made palpable the gospel that we say forms our life, forms the heart of what we are. Is that you have a Savior who has looked down at all your pathetic self, all your silly singing, all your failure. And he said, I would never be embarrassed of you. If you believe you're loved like that, you don't have to watch your back anymore. You're not building a spiritual resume anymore. You can go out now and ask this Savior to love through you like that. I hope we'll do it together. Amen.